Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. In this podcast, we discuss how data is creating our future. Specifically, we cover applications of analytics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. We discuss career tips for data scientists on how to lead and create value from data. And also, what are the current and future challenges in data science? In this podcast, we interview current leaders in the data space, such as heads of and directors of data science and data engineering, chief data scientists and chief data officers to find out straight from them what were the lessons they've learned in their careers which have helped them get to where they are today. My name is Felipe Flores and I have over 15 years experience in the data space where I've worked on everything from data warehousing to reporting and business intelligence to machine learning and artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, and welcome to episode 25. Today, we speak with Ben Taylor, who is an extremely fascinating guy. He was the first data scientist to join HireVue. This is years ago, and he became their chief data scientist. During the interview, this interview, he tells us a lot about the work that he was doing at HireVue, analyzing thousands of videos of job interviews. And he tells us about how they found what are the, the drivers and the factors that humans use to make decisions in job interviews and how they prove through the algorithms that they could eliminate and reduce some of the biases after identifying them. Extremely, extremely interesting work. He ended up leaving Hireview almost two years ago now to start his own AI company, which is called Ziff AI. And they're doing extremely interesting work there as well. Uh, he tells us a lot about it and uh, about the deep learning platform that they want to build for visionaries and software developers. Ben does a lot of speaking, but also a lot of answering questions online. He's a big part of the community and he's been number one in Quora for artificial intelligence. He's been number one repeatedly and he for many years now he's been in the top 10. He is an extremely fascinating guy and he tells us things and during the interview he tells us things like what are the downsides of Google's TensorFlow. He walks us through the things that he hates. He talks about how to pick machine learning projects to tackle in organizations. As I mentioned before, he talks about eliminating bias in AI applications and covers things like doing topic discovery with deep learning. It's a super fascinating interview and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, this is Felipe Flores and today I'm speaking with Ben Taylor. How are you doing, man? Good. How are you, Felipe? Ah, so good, so good. Thanks so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you, and um, so I'm really glad that we get some time together today. Yeah, yeah, me as well. At the beginning, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a little bit about your background and your career journey to date. Yeah, so for most people that have been, it's kind of hard to see in the camera, but I've got some gray in my beard, and the the joke is it's experience or stress that I'm I'm advertising from my career. So for most people who are the gray beards and the gray haired women of data science, they didn't come from a formal computer science data science track. A lot of them came from physics. They came from my background. I came from chemical engineering. They came from something else, and they kind of found themselves in this track eventually. So. So just you just want me to go over kind of a brief overview of my background, how I kind of got into data science. Okay, so I, I studied chemical engineering because I really liked math. 
I didn't realize this until actually a couple of weeks ago when I was really kind of putting together the timeline. Because a lot of times we kind of focus on our career after college or after our formal education. But actually in high school, I fell in love with math. So with, when I started studying calculus, if you'd asked me in high school, I would have been convinced that I was some type of savant or like gifted math student, which sounds really dumb today because I, I would not say I'm exceptional at math. If anything, I'm average or below average. But in high school, I crushed it. I always got a perfect score on my exams. I actually do math for fun. I felt like I was God's gift to the world for math. And so when I went to college, well, before I changed there, I actually remember having math questions that my calculus teacher couldn't answer. So I'd have to go to the university and talk to tutors and different things to get, get these answers. So I was just on fire when it came to math. I, I loved it so much, but I didn't want to be a mathematician because they don't make any money. And so I ended up going to chemical engineering so I could satisfy math and I'd still become a physician potentially. And that career was really kind of windy and evolving. But the big breakthrough for me is I got exposed to numerical methods, so computer programming. And I think the thing I immediately realized was programming is an opportunity to amplify you, your efforts. Like I can literally be sleeping or I can be talking to you and I can, and this is actually true. So I'm talking to you and my, the computers I have access to are, they're doing stuff for me and, you know, they're training deep nets, they're making progress, they're doing studies. I fell in love with that. So I, my whole college background all the way through grad school, I focused on computer vision and numerical methods. Didn't really have anything to do with chemical engineering. And I actually got feedback from professors saying that internship you did with a satellite image processing, it's not a chemical engineering internship. It was like negative feedback. They're like, uh, I don't know what to do with you. And so I went and got a job for Intel in Micron. This was after my master's and they hire a lot of chemical engineers. That's a normal thing. So they, I worked for their NAND flash plant here in Utah. So they make a lot of the memory and the iPhones and the iPads, stuff like that. I worked there for five years. And I think some people would argue my big breakthrough for data science came working for a hedge fund. So after working for Intel for five years, I had a friend come up to me and say, I, I was still doing AI for fun kind of on the side. I had a GPU and this was before deep learning existed. So I had a GPU for high performance computing to do, you know, accelerated matrix math for fun. And I had an coworker come up to me named Girish and he said, Hey, there's job opening where they're looking for a heart artificial intelligence expert and a GPU expert. You do that for fun. You should just go apply to this hedge fund. And so I, I did that, learned a lot. And I think kind of the reality of the hedge funds make you realize that data scientists have been around for a while. They weren't called data scientists. They were called quants. And quants, that's slang for quantitative analyst. So coming out of Manhattan um, in New York, there were rumors of quants making $700,000 a year U.S. salaries. And they're not managers. They're just super nerds. So they're super nerds. They can program really well. They understand matrix calculus and stuff that people don't really get exposed to. They make a lot of money, but they also have really high consequences. So their models are high risk, high return. So if you're a quant and you promise a certain type of performance on a stock model, if that performance doesn't, if it's not realized, it's going to be the worst day of your life. Where as a data scientist, some of the other industries we work in like advertising, you just get your hand slapped. It's like, oh, Oops, I overfit my model or, oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. But in hedge fund, like working for a hedge fund, you promise a sharp ratio, which is like their accuracy. And if you're wrong, it's so bad if you're wrong. I'm going a little longer than I want, so I'll hurry and wrap up. It's so. great. It's great. No, oh, take your time. Okay. So now that after working at the hedge fund, I realized, well, I guess I'm a data scientist now because that was kind of taking off around 2000. 
2014. Or no, it was sooner than that. Yes, 2013, 2012. Um, I joined a Sequoia Capital-backed company called HireVue, which was interesting because I had a friend tell me to go, oh, you should really check out this company. They're called HireVue because I was kind of shopping. I had a few job offers in the market. And when I found out they're an HR company, I thought, like, I don't want to go work for an HR company. That sounds really stupid. That sounds boring. But then I found out they're getting around from Sequoia Capital. So before it was announced, I found out that this was going down. And for Utah, that's really bizarre. So San Francisco, that would be normal. I'd be like, oh, yeah, there's probably 100 startups here that have received attention from Sequoia. But in Utah, I think at the time, there were only two. So I took a close look, and they had millions of videos of people getting jobs. I think part of me, I was attracted to that problem because it's interesting. It's really hard. So if I have video of people getting jobs, can I predict whether or not you should get a job? But the thing I really liked was the can of worms that comes with that problem. Just because I can predict if you should get a job from a video, like, should that be something that exists? But also, how do you control for racism and sexism and all of this stuff that is kind of unknown? So I did that for four years. I helped build out their data science team. And we built an AI product. And it's used out in the wild now. It's consumed in industry. And then during that process, I felt like doing deep learning was way too hard. It was not a casual undertaking. It was, I'm going to do deep learning and I'm going to spend tens of thousands of dollars in hardware and it's going to take me months and months and months before you have something useful. Things are much easier today, but a couple of years ago, it was felt really hard. So I quit my favorite job which sounds really stupid. So I, I literally had my like my favorite job. I had my favorite boss, favorite job. I loved the team, IRView. So I quit my job and I went and did a startup. So I co-founded this startup with another data scientist named David Gonzalez, also a gray beard, super experienced, um, wonderful co-founder. And we've been doing this for the last year and a half, completely bootstrapped, just living on our own savings, doing deep learning as a service. And so it's been really good. We've learned, I think for people that are on the edge, should I quit my job and go do a startup? The incentive there is if you really quit, you can finally run, like you can run as fast as you can, but you can also fail. You don't really have a safety net. So if you make mistakes, that means your family doesn't get paid and it's 100% your fault. It's not your boss's fault. It's not the CEO's fault. It's not someone else. It's your fault. So it's been a good experience. What a journey. All right. So, Ahmed, I've got so many questions on so, oh, many, on so many stages there. I'm so keen to dive into each of the stages. But first, I wanted to ask you, what was it in the early days about data or maybe it was the image processing or the video processing? What was it in the early days that drew you in, into the data space? Yeah. So I think I really like computer vision because you get an instant reward, you get instant feedback. You can see something that's really cool, which I think is interesting because me telling you that I thought I was a math savant or someone really special, my dreams were stepped on when I took, I think it was partial differential equations and linear algebra. And so when I first took linear algebra, I essentially failed the course. I didn't fail, but I think I got a C minus or maybe even a D plus. Like I, I did really bad. But one of the reasons I did so poorly is the professor who's teaching it, it wasn't applied. So he's showing you linear algebra and you're trying to remember these rules. You have no real world application. Then later when I was exposed to computer vision, computer vision is all linear algebra. You're doing all of these matrix operations they're all applied 
you can see what you did immediately. So I think I do recommend for people to, if you're kind of getting into linear algebra or some of the data stuff, play with computer vision because computer vision is really, really fun. You can detect a face, you can look at like motion, you can do all these really fun things. So I, I started there. I One of the things I skipped over is I did start a rock climbing company when I was in college. So it was an e-commerce company. This was back in 2003. So that was where I really had to learn how to program because I had to build a website, it had a database, I had to integrate credit card processing, like integrations into the store. Now those integrations would be trivial. People actually want to do, they want to spend time even mentioning that they did that. But in 2003, it was a real pain in the ass to try to like, I think I spent two weeks getting our credit card processing module to work in our code base, but we got it to work. That was kind of a fun exposure to data, but computer vision is really where it took off, doing satellite image processing, video processing. And then even in graduate school, I ended up doing computer vision with scanning electron microscopy. So just like SEM images of gold nanoparticles. It was still image processing. I've got a SEM image with 2,000 particles and I need to run statistics on all of these little spheres, these little gold spheres. I need to know what's the sphericity, what's the shape, what are the dimensions, what's the, you know, the inter-particle spacing. You can't calculate that by hand because it would take too long. And how did you do it? Oh, uh, computer... Just computer vision. So there's a really fun algorithm called um, Watershed. So if you search uh, computer vision watershed, so what it essentially does is, I'm going to totally butcher the explanation of how this works, but you can kind of imagine if I have a monochromatic or a black and white image, and I've got these bright little circles that are the gold nanoparticles, I can actually plot a 3D space and it would look like kind of like an egg carrier where you see all these tiny little dips, like thousands of dips. So the way the watershed algorithm works is you kind of visualize it as like raining. So if I'm raining on this 3D surface, I'm going to get these little pools of water showing up. And so what it allows you to do is you get really good segmentation, but you can even segment things that are essentially kind of touching. If I do thresholding is the dumbest way to do it. So if I just say anything below 50 on you know the pixel, darkness is a thing. That's like 101. That's almost so basic, it's not useful. But watershed, you can actually start segmenting things that are essentially touching or they're hard to differentiate between. So that, that's how you can get all the particles. And then for the particles, once you've isolated them, you can then go through and segment them out one at a time using all automated using computer vision. That's fantastic. And what type of tools did you have available back then? So I used MATLAB and I should throw MathWorks a bone and tell them how much, how great they are. But I, so getting back to me thinking I'm a math savant, when I graduated with my undergrad, I was the best MATLAB engineer I had ever met. And I continued, that continued to be true. So like I could do like C++ integrations, I could do these hacks. So I remember reading like this undocumented MATLAB website where you do all these things that MathWorks didn't want you to do. So I felt like I could do anything, anything in MATLAB. And that actually ended up being a bad thing because it was a crutch for me. So Intel, I got them to pay for my MATLAB license. So I continued to, I took my crutch from school to my job. And then at the, at the hedge fund, we had a 600 GPU cluster and MATLAB supported GPU computing. So we also continued the MATLAB licensing. I didn't necessarily force that. They they were already using MATLAB. And then at Higher View, we bought a MATLAB license when I first joined based on my recommendation. <laughs> and 
I haven't used MATLAB for four years. I only use Python. I think it would make sense to use MATLAB if you're doing something very, that kind of falls into very traditional engineering. Like if you're doing some mechanical engineering problem, electrical engineering, maybe chemical engineering problem, maybe there's a use case that's so niche, so focused, there's some MATLAB plugin to make that useful. If you're doing data science, deep learning, I don't use MATLAB, just use Python. You don't have to pay for licensing and I would argue you actually get better technology. Definitely. And how did you win yourself of the crutch or of the drug? Well, for some of these things, you just have to rip the Band-Aid off and it's painful. And I had already done this before a few times. So I had a professor all through chemical engineering. We actually liked this professor so much, we made t-shirts with his face on them. So the whole, it hurt the feelings of the other chemical engineering professors because they're like, oh, that guy's got his face on all of the t-shirts because it was the whole department. So I was the department president. And so this guy, I think he was from Venezuela and he was really, really smart. And you go ask him a question that seemed impossible. Like the smartest kids in the department had just bashed their brains against the wall for hours. They can't figure out this thing. They go into his office to ask him a question. And these are really hard problems. They're like biomedical reactors with cell growth. And you're trying everything that the book has taught you and you can't figure it out. And he always would say with a really strong Spanish accent, it's so easy. Like, it, like it's so easy. Like, And so we had this chemical engineering shirt with his face on it that said, it's so easy. And then on the back, we had the equations for calculating like volatility for a liquid. It was like a, a liquid mixture. And the equations take up like the entire shirt. Even, oh, wow. And even being a data scientist, you look at the equations, you're like, holy crap. Like, I, I don't know what I'm looking at, but it looks completely useless. Oh, so... This same professor, he told the students all through undergrad that they needed to use Linux. He told everyone, you need to use Linux, you need to use Linux. He kept saying this. We had so much yeah. respect for him because we knew how brilliant he was. And his recommendation was terrible. So he wanted people to use like Gen 2 <laughs> Linux, like the hardest wow. Linux. Like that'd be a terrible recommendation. If you don't use Linux, say, oh, go use Gen 2. No, that is like, no, like that's a terrible recommendation. I tell people, go use Ubuntu or something easy. Go use yes. Mint. And so when I graduated, I had so much respect for him. I decided I'm going to switch to Linux. I just decided cold turkey, like my whole laptop, three formatted. I'm only doing Linux and it was terrible. So for three months, I hated everything about computing. Nothing worked. Flash didn't work. This is when things sucked. So today things are better. But back then you couldn't watch YouTube. You couldn't listen to MP3s. It was like this big effort to get things to work. But then three months later, I loved it. And actually, I loved it so much. I was frustrated that I hadn't switched sooner. And I knew Python was going to wow. be the same thing. I knew that this is going to be really painful. I'm going to feel, I'm actually going to feel exposed for like a month or two. I will feel exposed where I can't deliver things at the same, like MATLAB, I felt like I was this, you know, if you need something, you can watch me program it and I'll be done in an hour. Like, and it doesn't matter what it is. That's what I felt like with MATLAB. But yeah, a month later, you just have to rip that bandaid off. Amazing. Just, yeah. And this comes up for people switching from R. I get a lot of pushback from data scientists that use R. They refuse to switch to Python. And it's the same reason, because they're gods. It comes to their R script or their R shiny. They can do anything and they can wow everyone. But the data scientists I know that have jumped out of R into Python, they later admit their mistakes and they see it clearly. I, I make R data scientists mad because I say, Oh, it's easy to know. It's easy to remember the difference between R and Python. R is for research and Python's for products. R is for research, Python's for products. So if you want to actually, if you want to see the light of day on something useful, build in Python. If you want it to remain a validation study forever and never be consumed, do it in R. 
<laughs> so I made some R. I made some R data scientists pretty mad, or they, they probably don't follow me anymore on LinkedIn because I'm like, man, this Ben Taylor is an asshole. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing for TensorFlow right now. I hate TensorFlow with such a passion. So TensorFlow is Google's. It's the most popular deep learning framework. If you saw my laptop right now, I've got all of these TensorFlow stickers on the back of it. And uh-huh. people that know me well, they're like, you hate TensorFlow. And I, I know. I think it's funny. I'm the only one that thinks it's funny that my laptop has TensorFlow stickers all over it. I think it's the dumbest language out there. That's It's not very useful. It's just there to confuse people. It doesn't make it to production. And we could really dig into detail about all the problems with TensorFlow, like the technical debt that exists in the code base and why just assuming that just because Google's using it is not a good argument to use something. Yeah, no, let's jump in because that's super interesting. So what do you see as the as some of the problems and the things that you don't like about TensorFlow? So I felt like it's funny. So be, people that are beginners that are kind of moving into data scientists that feel overwhelmed, some of them like finding out that people like me Google stuff constantly. Stuff that's very minor. Like, hey, I'm going to make a, a certain type of plot in Jupiter, and I've done this 100 times. I'm still going to Google how to do it. Like, we're constantly Googling. And... You would never think that Googling something makes you, like, you would not write, I'm a good Googler on my resume. But when you're doing that long enough, you realize, I actually am a really good Googler. It's not like me. It's like, if you Google daily, you're really, really good. You can find what you need. You can do these very complicated search strings. You can find stuff that other data scientists can't find. If I'm using a technology stack and it's difficult, like NVIDIA's GPU drivers, that's another thing I'll throw under the bus. There's not really an excuse. They're way too hard to install. It should not be that hard to install. It should just be like if you're using a Ubuntu or Debian system, it should be sudo apt-get install latest NVIDIA drivers. I'm done. And then if there's like a version where I need to roll back, I just do the same thing again or I uninstall. It should be that easy. It's not. And you have to do like all these like driver blacklisting, things like that. TensorFlow is the same way. So if I have a brand new data scientists and I tell them, hey, go do multi-GPU deep learning. They're going to run into so many problems with TensorFlow. And even if they kind of dive into the way TensorFlow explains multi-GPU, it's really confusing. Like this whole thing with the session and in TensorFlow, people will argue, no, no, that makes sense. It's like, no, all of that is really dumb because something like MXNet, if I want to do multi-GPU, I have a Python list object. That's it. Of one line wow. of code. It's a Python list. Those are all the GPUs. And if I'm not smart enough to know how many GPUs are on my system, there's a single line of code to produce that Python list. Like, I don't even have to go count them. I can just say, yep, there's 16, or there's 8, or there's 10. It's one line of code. It works really well. It's really, really fast. So I don't like, I hate exception handling. If I have code and if it throws an unhandled exception, if I have to Google what that exception means, I hate everyone that wrote that code. Everyone. Like, <laughs> I, I hate, I am so angry at them. But I've noticed with MXNet and some of these other libraries or Gluon, when they barf up an exception, I just glance at the exception. I know exactly what happened. TensorFlow, that, that hasn't been the case. And then to kind of wrap it up with TensorFlow, it's not just my... So you can just say, oh, this is Ben's opinion. It's unjustified. He doesn't have any defense to this opinion. TensorFlow has shown time and time again that they are one of the last to provide up-to-date patches for the latest innovation. So with NVIDIA's V100s, uh, Dell was doing testing. They're benchmarking CAFE, MXNet, these different frameworks. TensorFlow did not have a V100 release. They had to literally send Dell custom patches just so Dell could do the benchmarking and include TensorFlow. And I think the argument there is TensorFlow has one of the deepest source code stacks. So I think they have the most lines of source code. And I see that as just a massive pile of technical debt that's getting ready to topple over. 
people are really excited because TensorFlow now runs on Raspberry Pi a year mm -hmm. and a half or two years after MXNet, Theano, like all of, all of these frameworks already ran on the Raspberry Pi, but a year and a half later, TensorFlow now runs on the Raspberry Pi, but when they run come out with the Raspberry Pi version four or whatever, you can wait another year. Like so <laughs> and TensorFlow is slow. So when you do benchmarking, it's not as fast as PyTorch, not as fast as MXNet. The only argument that TensorFlow has is I think they have a Android. So we run deep nets on mobile devices, just iPhone. We don't run them on Android. We use web APIs for that. TensorFlow would be a good use case for you to export to an Android device, I think. I hate TensorFlow so much, I don't even like talking about it. So, <laughs> so, so there's a Quora question out there that's unanswered that says, why does Ben Taylor hate Quora, um, TensorFlow so much? And I don't want to answer it because it just makes me angry. I was talking to a Google engineer last week in San Francisco because I was speaking at the O'Reilly AI conference yeah. and I had all of these complaints. And so I just complained to him for 30 minutes. And at the end, he's like, thanks for your feedback. Like, <laughs> I was telling him how much I hated the pip install experience with TensorFlow because with MXNet, I can pip install anything. If I need this GPU version, this GPU version, Raspberry Pi, whatever the versions, I can just do pip search and bring up a list of 10 options or 15 options. With TensorFlow, there's like three options or four, like it's just a mess. And the last thing to kind of put the final nail in the coffin for TensorFlow, there are literally people hosting their own pip Python wheels for TensorFlow because they have a certain compile for a GPU driver or a certain, you know, Python 3. They, they've got some version. They're hosting it somewhere on like Google Drive and people are downloading that that crap. Yeah, like there's literally people wow. sharing their own wheels and that just shows the lack of support. Like that would never happen with MXNet. Hey, here's a wheel in my Google Drive. I compiled <laughs> it for, and then I hate their compiler, that stupid Bazel compiler. Oh my gosh. Like, like they, and I tell people like, if you wrote TensorFlow for your, your like your PhD thesis, I would fail you. Like I, <laughs> I'd be like, what, what is this mess? Do you even know how to write good code? Do you know what industry needs? That is hilarious and true. Yeah. Like I, but it, that's weird. Cause the more I complain about TensorFlow, I don't get anyone fighting back. I just kind of mm. get people nodding like, yep. They're like, yep, I hate TensorFlow too. The only people that even respond to my TensorFlow rants are beginners where they'll say, well, what should I use instead? There's no one coming from Google that's like, oh, what about this and this? Um, so I, I will say one good thing about TensorFlow. So the one good thing is a lot of academics use it. I don't know if that's a good thing, unfortunately, but if you want the latest and greatest network architectures, like literally just bleeding, bleeding edge, like some deep learning researcher that you respect came out with a brand new deep learning method you're more likely to be able to find it in TensorFlow, which is really too bad. Eventually, that'll be ported out to the other frameworks, and you can go get it in PyTorch and MXNet and Gluon and these different frameworks. But right now, if you want bleeding, bleeding edge, use TensorFlow just so you can get access to those pre-trained networks or those brand new designs. Most practical business applications, I would never recommend using something bleeding edge. You can get a, a ton of value just using ResNet 150, which has existed for a very long time, and you can get that supported in all frameworks or all you know deep learning stacks. So true. Yeah. yeah. To get value, sometimes yeah. the, the oldies are goodies. Yeah. And I, actually, there was a someone is asking Elon Musk in an interview, like if he's keeping up with the latest bleeding edge for battery technology for Tesla's. And kind of his response was like, sure, like we see them occasionally in the lab, but he has no anxiety with them missing 
some bleeding edge breakthrough on battery technology because industry actually kind of lags behind research. So you have initial research where there's a lot of promise and people don't really appreciate this, but even with deep learning, there have been some huge papers that have come out and they're never adopted. They'll come out with some breakthrough like fractional max pooling. There's a lot of hype around fractional max pooling. It's not really used in industry for different reasons because industry doesn't care about the basis point fighting match. If I have MNIST and I can run like 99.7, if you can get to 99.8, industry just doesn't care. And they'd actually be mad at you if they found out what you had to do to do that. They'd say like, okay, so you're telling me you spent a month of work to come up with something that is really expensive to train, really expensive to inference, is brittle, it doesn't generalize, it's hyper-focused on this domain. Like all of these problems that with industry has to generalize, has to value quickly, you don't have time to kind of get deep in the weeds for weeks at a time on like academic insights. Like industry's just there. We're there to consume. We're there to ship value. That's right. Yes. Oh, so. That's so true. That's so true. And spot on. For you, where did you learn to make that trade-off and to focus on, on value? I think at the hedge fund, Intel had more appetite for long-term horizon projects where you, you could work on a project for months. You can't be dedicated on a project for months, but you can kind of have like, I'm working on four things and one of these things is going to exist for months, like as a, a kind of a research project in your your stack of things you're working on. At the hedge fund, the urgency was so high. You have to get things into production today. And some people get really discouraged by their mistakes with their career. They, they're hyper-focused on 2020. Like, man, if I hadn't done this, I could have been here. If I hadn't done this, I could have been here. They kind of celebrate the mistakes because I see them all as really useful tuition. I actually, I had a buddy who was flying. He was in a layover. He's been away from his family all week. He's flying to San Francisco. And he's essentially getting fired by the CEO on the phone. He's in San Francisco. He hasn't even made it home yet. He's been out of the country selling. It was just kind of really crappy situation. It wasn't his fault. And so he's so frustrated by this whole thing. And he's just looking at 2020 hindsight. If I'd stayed at my own employer, I would have had this promotion. But I kind of see those negative experiences as being your tuition. You'll have that for the rest of your life. And that's great. So the hedge fund was a very negative experience where I got, I worked with really smart people, but I got exposed to things like technical debt. And and one of the things with the hedge fund was the time to urgency was insane. So they would actually, the time to urgency was so extreme that they would expect things to be done that were impossible to do. So that academic behavior of like, oh, I'm going to research like the math theory behind our models for the next month, that would never happen. It's how can I ship something tomorrow morning before the hedge fund manager comes in? Not all data scientists can do that well. You have data scientists that are very academic. They are more than happy to spin circles for weeks or months on something that doesn't necessarily provide a lot of business value. It's just kind of an interesting academic exercise for them. But working for higher view and doing my startup, I respect time to value. The stuff I do has to make money and has to make money quickly. I can't afford to have a long-term play on something that'll make me money six months from now. Exactly right. And so how did you take that into your work at Highview? This is hard to do. So I think one of the questions you had is what makes a good data science leader? And I would not say I'm a good data science leader, but I know some of the behaviors that make a good data science leader is someone that can hit pause on a project 
so if we're working on a project and you and I are so excited about it, oh man, this is so cool. This technology is awesome. Oh, this could be really good. A good data science manager would actually pause the project. So two weeks from now, if they realize this is taking longer than we thought, it seems more complicated. It seems further from value, or maybe a new project came up that's a higher priority. They won't hesitate to pause the project. They'll say, okay, let's archive this code. We may come back to it knowing that the likelihood is no, you never come back to it. So a good data science manager will just kind of shuffle things around and be like, well, this was my passion project and it's canceled. We're putting it on the sidelines because this other thing shifts more value. The other example I'll give is, this is kind of how you can split hairs on these data science types. So if we have a problem, if I say, hey, I need you to predict customer churn. I've got all this Excel or data from Salesforce. You need to predict which customers are going to leave. A really good data scientist will ship a Bayesian model like tomorrow or something simple. The other type of data scientists will really get into the weeds that, well, if I just normalize this variable, or if I just control for this, or this gradient vista regression, I'm doing this hyperparam training, it's not really working. They just immediately go to where the data scientists are impressed, but the business is impressed with anything, because right now they get zero. You know you can ship a Bayesian model to production this week. An engineer can consume it, and you're not gonna lose sleep at night with it breaking. You can, but compared to these other methods. So I think that's how you can catch someone who's kind of academic is you tease them into, do you want to ship value or do you want to like tickle your brain? If they want to tickle their brain, then, well, how does you tickling your brain for the next two weeks make me money? It doesn't. Exactly right. And that is spot on because people just get really down in the weeds and they get excited about the work and they totally forget about the value. Yeah. One of the things we've realized talking to businesses, we say now, if you're starting a project with wouldn't it be cool, it's actually a bad project because like a lot of these really blue sky projects, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we could like, we could take our camera and we take this picture and all of this stuff happens. That's impossible, but it could be possible. Wouldn't that be amazing? Or or wouldn't it be cool if the user experiences this because of AI or we've got these Snapchat filters, wouldn't that be cool? But then when you get to like real brass tacks, things that make money, What if we just increase click-through rate by 5% on the e-commerce store? Or what if we reduce churn by 10%? That's cool because it makes a lot of money, but you never start those projects with, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if we increase click-through rate 10%? So we actually noticed that some of the executives and business leaders actually have better AI project ideas. They don't know the details. They have no idea how a project would be successfully completed, but their priorities in their mind make them better equipped to suggest projects. So we actually saw this within one company. We're going from like the chief science officer to the CIO, to the CEO. The CEO had the best project ideas, but they know the least. The technology stacks, they really don't care. They don't care are using TensorFlow, MXNet, they, they could care less. So Exactly, but their knowledge for the business and for value is what drives the right focus. Yeah. And some executives right now, they don't really see AI data science as being prime time. They see a lot of it as a science project. They're curious about AI. They're interested. They definitely want to be aware of what's going on. So one of the speaking points that we've been getting traction with is we'll actually call it like an AI lunch and learn. We'll come and do an AI lunch and learn for a company, but really it's a shock and awe. We'll show them some AI examples where their brains just explode because they can't believe what they're seeing. And that makes them realize that maybe some of their internal efforts have been misleading or or they've been distracted. 
So they can they can work on the wrong projects, but they can also pay for internal tuition where they have talent boots on the ground doing something very complicated like deep learning on video. No one on that team has actually successfully done that before. And so the company is paying for their tuition and then they're wondering 12 months from now, why haven't they shipped anything? So that, we see that that happens a lot. Of course, that's true. And what do you show them in those sessions? So it's funny because you have kind of a big chasm or valley of doability. So here you've got the executive, you've got the CEO, the one that controls the money that could pay you. And then here you have their application. So the theoretical click-through rate increase or some useful practical thing, there's a huge valley of doability that the CEO has no confidence that you, me, or anyone else can bridge this gap. And so One of the issues is if I'm trying to convince you to buy my product because of self-driving cars and just AI in general, that's actually a terrible selling point because you'll say, well, I don't have a self-driving car and I still have cancer. So what is AI doing for me? And so the other, the natural thing then is, well, I need to get you a case study that's so close to your business, you'll just believe me. So I literally have to bring click-through rate e-commerce case study with deep learning and hand it to you. That's not mm. practical to do with all industries. For some industries, you can do that because you start growing a vertical where you'll get those case studies. So the fun thing I've noticed is with this gap of doability, if I can completely shock you, I've crossed that gap. So if I show you something that's unrelated to your business, but so shocking, you're like, holy crap, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Your confidence that I can do this is now satisfied. So some of the things we've shown is we've, I used to be number one on Quora for AI. I think I'm number two right now because I haven't written anything on Quora for almost two weeks. But one of the things that made our footprint on Quora go viral were these genetic GANs. So we actually have the computer evolve a face to hit target models. So I can literally make requests. I can say, hey, I need an attractive woman. They need to be this age. They need to be this ethnicity. I'm going to maximize attraction and you just make a synthetic human. And the AI will actually evolve a human face to deliver this target. And then the other thing we showed is I can actually do selective breeding. So I can take a simulation. I'm going to take person A, person B. I can produce children. I can start doing this selective breeding. And so when people saw this, when they saw how good the models were, they were shocked. Then the other one that we had an executive lead come in because we demonstrated in the U.S., there's this reality TV show called ABC's The Bachelor, Bachelorette. It's where you have like one single dude and 30 women, and you spend a whole season of him dating everyone, and he picks who he's going to marry. It's kind of a, a stupid show, but my wife loves it, and I watch it with her. So we did a deep learning model where we showed we could predict the winner. So just AI looking at the face. So before the show even starts, just looking at the faces, yeah. it's actually much more, con it's not just beauty rank. There's other stuff going on, but the thing that really shocked people is for one of the seasons, we showed we predicted the winner, and that's where people were really... I think the results are a little discouraging because it makes people look dumb. Like if I can like look at faces, I can predict the winner and that makes the bachelor look really, really stupid. I showed these results in Chicago. I had like 10 seasons where all of these bachelor seasons were predicted out of sample and they all did really well. But one season we weren't able to predict it. It was like, The AI rank was in the middle. So it was still like, we didn't fail, but it, it wasn't, we didn't, weren't picking the winners like our top three or top five. So someone in the audience asked why like season, I forget the season number, but like why season 17, why the AI wasn't able to predict it. So I told the audience, there's like a hundred people in the audience. And I said, well, that's because that bachelor was also, he was actually a, a good guy. Like he was a really good guy.
AI. All the other bachelors were assholes. <laughs> they were so shallow that the AI knew who they were going to pick from a single face shot. This guy was actually more complicated. There are other things going on, like personality finally mattered for this individual. When you show them examples like that, so we, we actually have a data set right now for smoking. So we're teaching the AI to predict if you're a smoker just by looking at your face. So some of those data sets, when you show people, it surprises them. Definitely. That is brilliant. And then once you shock people with these examples and your and essentially the ability, what do you help them with next? Then we help them with deciding on projects because it's like herding cats. So you, you have the two options. You can drop a precision AI missile where I actually hit your case study, or I could just drop a nuke and you're like, mm -hmm. oh, like, oh my goodness, like AI could do whatever I need it to do. And then after that, it's like herding cats because we'll go into a meeting. Some of these meetings are really bad where you'll have executives or managers and some of the technical talent and they're coming up with ideas on different projects to do. And half of the ideas are really bad but they're excited about them. They're talking about them. And so one of the things we try to kind of steer people towards is if we have five good ideas or 10 good ideas, just take 10 seconds per idea, write it up on the board and then write how many millions of dollars that saves your company next to that idea. And I don't really care about the qualified estimate or like the assumptions that went into that. Just real quick, just uh, I think this will save $5 million, $1 million. And what you'll find is some of these projects you suggested, you can't write any number. It's an unknown. It's a question mark. So the example would be like Pinterest integration into e-commerce. So I have an e-commerce website and how awesome would that be? Wouldn't it be cool if we could integrate Pinterest, find persona, and now from your Pinterest profile, I know what products you want to see. The doability in the background with AI is like, yeah, you and I are saying like, sure, AI will do that. What's, is it useful? I don't know. AI will do it, maybe, but it's really hard for you to write a dollar amount, but click-through rate is obvious. If click-through rate increases 5%, that's worth $15 million to my business. So we, we help people kind of go that way. The other thing we try to prevent is sometimes AI projects, they try to predict an intermediate variable, like literally labeling an image or something. Like I'm trying to predict some quality assessment on a property, and can I just predict whether or not you have a chimney? We try to prevent all of those projects because they're hard to quantify the value. So if I have a really good chimney classifier, hey guys, I'm so excited our chimney classifier is 98% accurate. What is that worth? Like what is my chimney classifier worth to your business? It's almost $100 a month, probably not. But if we focus on the actual property appraisal, that no, no, we using all the data that matters, I can predict the price of your home better than human. That's, we want to have that conversation. So we always try to get to end of value. A lot of people try to throw us into some intermediate, we're going to generate some intermediate metadata and we try to avoid that. Definitely. And how do you nudge them away from that? Getting back to the value, they appreciate value. In the end, even though people get distracted, they really appreciate that you're trying to hold them accountable to delivering value. So we're trying to find value because we want to justify our software license. So we'd rather work on a project that's worth tens of millions than one that's worth 100,000. But they appreciate it too because they want to have good updates for the board, good updates for their peers, or even stuff that matters for the company. They want new growth opportunities. So it's not hard to convince them, but we some companies are great. It's really easy. They already know what value looks like. 
other companies, we just leave the meeting shaking our heads, just like, can value ever be found? Or is this just a science project, like celebration of nonstop science projects? So it depends on the business and the urgency. Some businesses have no urgency, and then it is just blue sky discovery. And that becomes difficult because we're never going to be domain experts. We don't know their business. And that starts to feel like consulting where you're kind of coming into the business and you're trying to be exposed to. And I think that's something that these AI platform companies, that's just something they have to put up with initially. The professional service side or the sales engineer, they have to be willing to kind of go through that journey with the customer on fleshing out blue sky and separating practical from impractical. Yes, that's right. And at the moment, are there any industries or areas that you guys have made bigger inroads into? Yeah. So we've tried to be really flexible as a platform company. A lot of venture capitalists will try to get you to force, they'll try to force you into a vertical immediately. And to show you how how dumb this is, we're pitching to VCs when we first started a year and a half ago. We actually have a porn model. So we have a not safe for work model. It it has a good application. It can be used to filter photos that humans used to have to look at. When we were talking about this proprietary data set that we had, one of the VCs said, do that. You will be the porn filtering company. You'll offer the world's best porn filtering services to all industries and all companies. And me and my co-founder are like, we didn't quit our jobs to build the porn model. Like, forget whether or not that sounds fun or exciting, or if you think it's boring, it's just, that's such a limited scope. But the VCs want that limited scope. And so we really focused on being an AI platform company where we would support data set types. Because if I can support images, video, and audio, we kind of don't know what the verticals will be. We can guess, and we can have pretty good guesses. And so we've been really surprised. Some of the inbound opportunities we've had, they've come from manufacturing. They've also come from entertainment and advertising. I don't think we would have chased advertising. The obvious ones would be e-commerce, call centers, stuff like that. We do want to kind of get multiple customers stacking up with an e-commerce call center and eventually manufacturing just so we can have marketing and case studies to kind of enable a sales team to capture more of those. But at the same time, we want to remain open for kind of the unknown because the AI market is so new. I feel like we actually have a pretty good bead on what businesses are doing. And that's why we're getting attention right now from Dell and from some of these hardware makers. So we've had some shared marketing with Pure Storage and Dell, and we're getting ready to have shared marketing with some of the other hardware makers because we do have a pretty good bead on what businesses are using deep learning for. But at the same time, we don't know. What we know is only 2020 hindsight that, oh, entertainment is a good vertical. But in the future, I'm still pretty excited about manufacturing, but manufacturing has, it's got a long sales cycle and it's got some hurdles that we have to jump over. One of them is data acquisition. So with manufacturing, I'll come into a manufacturing group and find out that they employ 10 people to do a visual inspect. And the visual inspect is not sophisticated. It's actually, we would know immediately that AI can do that. But the problem is they don't have the industrial cameras set up. They don't have the software pipeline. None of that is built out yet. And so that means that that's kind of, that's a really long cycle. But we we are dealing with manufacturing leads that we're working through. That is actually a lot of hurdles that I hadn't thought of when trying to upgrade or digitize an industry. Yeah, and the, the other hurdle there is Who's responsible for that? Because a lot of times being a software vendor, you can't spread yourself too thin. So you have to rely on other partners. It'd be a huge mistake for you to decide, we'll do everything. We will actually build an end-to-end AI app for every custom business, and we'll take care of the hardware. Like that, That's a recipe for disaster because you can only do one thing well. So we definitely look for partners. 
some of these companies, we're working with an automotive company right now where they have budget to take care of all that, like the hardware acquisition or the data acquisition through some custom hardware implementation where they see it as kind of a research effort. But I'm really excited about manufacturing because I've dealt with manufacturing in semiconductor. And I know it's there are so many opportunities for automation, really good automation. I tend to be really bullish for AI versus humans. We have lots of examples where we have superhuman AI. It's performing at the human level, if not better. And if it's not, the first question I ask is, what does the human know that we don't know? Mm. So if you're outperforming an official inspect, I would say, what do you know that I don't know? And what usually ends up happening is there's some type of metadata. There's something you knew about this item before you had access to it. You knew the part type. You had some historical insight. You've seen it before. Advertising. You've worked with this celebrity before. You've worked with this like this medium. So you have some insight. So we've, we see once you give all of that to the AI, it's extremely competitive. In manufacturing, it's kind of a losing battle because if I can't beat you on an RGB camera, I can go hyperspectral. Like I, I can actually have a camera that creates images in five different wavelengths, 10 different wavelengths. And then that's when a human is guaranteed to lose. Like the writing's kind of on the wall with like RGB like there are examples where you get superhuman performance, but as soon as you start bringing some of the other stuff to the table, like x-ray, infrared, hyperspectral, there's no way for a human to compete. No way. Yeah. And have you had, can you tell us about an example where originally the human had more information than the AI and was therefore able to beat it and then that changed? So a natural progression we had with an advertising platform, they had all of their business structure data, which they had developed over time. And it was really good information. It's essentially their intellectual property. It's their understanding of the problem. That was predictive by itself, but it wasn't beating the human effort. And so then you start asking, well, what does the human do? Does the human stare at this Excel document or do they stare at this database to make the decision? And the answer is, well, no, they go watch this video content or they go look at this and they read these descriptions. And then you say, well, great. I want the AI to watch all that. I want the AI to watch all the videos. I want the AI to read all the descriptions. And then even with, with that, we saw a big improvement. But even with, with that, we found out the human still had an advantage because the human had prior knowledge on a successful advertising venue. So just looking at the single record, it looks great. But the human actually knew that I've used this multiple times in the past. So there's some temporal component that, yeah, I've used this five times in the past. My bet is that much better as a human. And so with the AI, the company was able to introduce new structured variables that represented that historical insight. And so then when the AI actually knew everything the human knew, the AI was better because the AI, it's not subjective. It doesn't bring bias. It prioritizes what matters. Humans, time and time again, we have examples where we prioritize things that actually aren't that useful. So for hiring, attractiveness is actually a big part of that. And then bias, like racial, so gender, race, beauty, and age bias have way too much influence on the human process for hiring, where AI can focus on performance. Like literally, what? how do I predict that you will be a top performer a year from now? Humans are arrogant and we think we know. So I've actually talked to people that they've told me, I can make a hiring decision in 30 seconds. I can what? interview you in 30 seconds. I'm like, yes, no. And what ends up happening is humans hire based on similarity and likability. And likability is not performance. So it's, do we like each other and can we go have a drink or hang out on the weekend? But does that mean I'm going to deliver value consistently 
And am I going to be a top performer a year from now? And that's where AI can do, do a really good job. That is so great. So could you tell us more about how you dealt with those biases when working at, at Highview and, and looking into this space? So we actually started really complicated, which we definitely made mistakes at Higherview. But Higherview is actually, they're seen as a great poster child for a successful AI product because it's in the market. They've iterated. They've actually done a really good job with it. I'm quite proud of what Higherview has been able to accomplish. And even what they've done since I left two years ago, they, they're continuing to march forward. They've got a really good leadership team. But when we started looking into this almost four years ago, three years ago, we started too complicated. We actually had this really advanced algorithm that was attempting to figure out which features to reward and penalize. That's what happens in the end. So an interview model is quite complicated, but a resume model, people can start to wrap their minds around it. So if I'm using AI to look at your resume or CV and decide I should hire you, I should not hire you, people will appreciate if you're just consuming just the raw text, all of the text in your resume. And if you're not careful, the AI could learn a name that's tied to gender or race. So if your last name is Gonzalez, the AI might have an opinion on your name. And humans would say, oh my gosh, that is I did not know that was going to happen. That is terrible. That should not happen. So the human would come in and manually remove that feature. But what about all the other features? What about the college you went to? What about your GPA? What about your home address? What about just the language of the resume? There are lots of other features in there. They would tease out racial, gender, even age insights that a human would not pick up on, but AI can pick up on it. So you have to teach the AI to remove certain features. And so the only way you can do that is you need to have performance So at the beginning, we're going to predict performance. That's what we agreed to do. But now you also need to have a label for race, gender, and age, and any bias you want to project against. So if we're keeping it really simple, and we just have race. I have a metric for performance, a metric for race. I actually end up building two independent models. So I build one model to predict performance, and I build one model to predict race. And this model would really latch on to stuff like name, fraternity, all of these things that give it any hooks to predict this. We now have an understanding of which features to keep and which features to eliminate. And when you're dealing with hundreds of thousands or millions of features, it's not a big deal to throw a lot of them away. If I only have 10 features, I really can't throw any of them away. So if I find that one is heavily correlated with race, that's going to be a very, very hard for me to deal with. A classic one in the U.S. is GPA. So your grade point average from the university It's the number one thing that humans use to throw a resume away. You know, your GPA is below this threshold, therefore it's a no, but it's racially correlated. So there's some race minority groups in the U.S., their distributions for GPA are lower. And so what they've done is they've actually, they've done some GPA norming. They'll actually do like a race norm where me being a white male, my GPA is manually knocked down. And then this minority group has moved up. And you can see that it causes all sorts of problems because now I'm screaming reverse discrimination that I wish <laughs> I wasn't a white male because I want full credit for my GPA at Harvard where you don't know, maybe I did come from the Bronx or something, and maybe I did have to work two jobs through school, and maybe I did get a 4.0, I got divorced doing it, but I got it. You don't know, like you don't know that, but doing the, the race norming is problematic. So the easiest thing is to throw the feature away. It's like kids fighting over a toy. No one gets the toy and you just throw it away. So the approach is actually really simple, but it works surprisingly well. We can take a model that has, we can take a training set that has obvious bias and we can block the bias transfer by throwing all the features away that have that correlation. That is fantastic. So what are your thoughts on the current discussion of AI ethics and bias? 
well, obviously news and things like that. What were your views? Maybe I'm a bad person to ask that because so I've been in arguments with people that do this for their academic research. So actually, there was kind of this Twitter storm uh, a year or two ago. Some like I'm still mad at this guy. Some Princeton professor started tweeting white papers saying that hired you needed to look into like this racial bias stuff. And when we looked at the white papers he was tweeting, the stuff we were doing was so far beyond that. So it was so much more advanced than the stuff he was tweeting, where I still feel like HireVue is leading. The stuff that HireVue is doing in production is much, much better. It's much more sophisticated than anything we've seen coming from the academic circles. And it's also trained and iterated on proprietary data sets that those academics could never get. At the HireVue data science team, they're working with data sets an academic would never have. And the academics, when they do these test cases, they're dealing with like synthetic data sets, or even worse, they're like student data sets, where it's literally a student going through a fake interview process where they don't actually get a job, but they're pretending like they're trying to get a job. So that's bugged me, where these academics kind of feel like they're coming from like this higher bar on ideation and thinking about this problem, where in business, it's like, oh my gosh, we shipped this three years ago at scale, but people are still talking about it. And the other thing that really bugs me, and I'm thinking about one person, and I, I won't say their name, but sometimes people get under your skin. This person definitely got under, under my skin. So I watched this person present, and he's made it sound like bias with AI is maybe something that will never be fixed. So he almost tries to make it sound like this problem is so complicated that you should respect my research domain, where it's like, oh my hell, like we have rocket scientists at companies like SpaceX landing rockets backwards. Like that's hard. Blocking <laughs> racial transfer with AI, that's stupid. Like it's easy. There's actually no excuse for doing it. But these people, they try to make it sound like, I know I'm the world's leading expert, like not, not me specifically, but these people talk like, I know I'm the world's leading expert on bias with AI, but maybe it'll never be fixed. Or they just try to suggest like this domain is like untouchable, where I get pretty frustrated with that, where it's just like, well, how about we fix racism with these minority groups? And how about we fix sex, like, you know, gender discrimination? Because you, you can pick like a few things and you can definitely solve those. Like we list three things, like we don't want this, this, and this. We can solve those this week for your data set. You don't need to kind of have these like academic idea circles that's one of the things that bugs me right now is when you see AI ethics, people talk about it like it's in its infancy. Everything right now, they're talking about it like this is the first that people have thought about it in 2018. Like, oh, did you know that AI ethics should be talked about? And that, that really bugs me because it's not just high review, like Pymetrics. There's other companies. They've had AI mitigation, like adverse impact mitigation AI strategies in production years ago. And not just production, but scale. And maybe that wasn't the question you're asking, because that's specific around like racism and bias and stuff like that. There, there's definitely AI ethics that the thing I love about AI is it knocks down our fences. So in certain domains, you have we've defined these fences where we can play. So in HR, it's like, well, you have to predict performance. You can't have adverse impact and it has to be related to the job. So me building a model from your accelerometer data in your pocket from the week of you walking to work, I actually can't use that to predict if you should get a job. We know it would be predictive. Like I know that data is predictive because it's such a rich data set, but I can't use it in the US to predict that you should get a job. So you kind of have these ethical things, but with AI, they kick down a fence where the experts have never thought about this. So the example with HR, have you seen that example where that guy's flying a drone with a cradle cap? It's literally taking his brainwaves and it's flying a drone. So maybe you can see where I'm going with this. I could actually demonstrate this year, 
I'm going to put a cradle cap on you. And I'm going to flash chemical engineering content at you. And I'm going to tell you if you're familiar with the content. So it's the unspoken interview. So you haven't said anything. I just flashed all of these images at you for a minute. And then based on your brain activity, I said, congratulations, you got the job. Or I say, oh, sorry. So that's like a new like example of like, you've completely kicked down a fence. And now people have to react to that. They didn't know that you could predict someone's risk of kidney failure from their face. What do they do with that information? Can I, or beauty, like now AI can predict beauty. Can I discriminate at scale against people that are ugly? Like now you've created new problems for people where they're like, hopefully not, but people will do it. Exactly. So then that is crazy. So for example, yeah, with the interview and saying whether you're familiar with the content or the topic, that obviously leaves, well, issues, but doors, doors open around like potential and like the cultural fit that you were mentioning before. Yeah. So there's a lot of information you can get from those data sets. The, the scary, the, where things get really, really scary is AI can learn things that you and I can't understand. Even though we have these wonderful tools for unpacking what it did, we really can't understand what it did for this example. So one example would be predicting whether or not someone should get a job from their face. Yeah. I could demonstrate that this model is not racist. It's not sexist. There's no age bias. There's no beauty bias. I could actually satisfy, you know, five different things where this deep net looking at your face or my face is making a prediction on whether or not you should get a job or I should get a job. And we're intentionally forcing it to not learn religion, not learn race, and not learn these things. Someone who's naive might feel good about that. But the scary thing with AI is you actually have no idea what happened because that model, it could have learned genetic factors. It could have learned some health factors. It could have learned something that we don't really have a good grasp around, even, you know, potentially your income level, your hygiene or something that is tied to that. And so with that cradle cap example, we might get excited because, oh, I'm predicting familiarity. Familiarity is job related and it's defensible. You need to know this data science content or I'm not going to give you a job. But AI like that might actually stumble across literally your genetic structure of your brain where it's ripping out your IQ or your cognitive ability. Humans are okay with that if it's coming through an assessment, but the ethical boundary that I kind of realized is there, it's predetermined destiny. So mm -hmm. humans are okay if as long as you feel like your destiny is not predetermined, which it is for a lot of people because they've shown like your testing scores and stuff, in some ways they're tied to you initially. Like I will never get a perfect score on the US SAT test or the ACT. Like I don't even think I could go back and time. I don't have the brain for it, but there are people in the U.S. that achieve that. So for that example, you could actually get to a point where you have to tell someone, I'm sorry, you weren't born with the brain to work at Google. And that's where people get really upset. But the AI can go there and it can go there even if you don't want it to. Or the AI might start turning away people from a job because of their risk of heart attack or their, you know, their health risk. The AI knows they won't be a good performer because they're going to have kidney failure in the next 12 months. And so the AI is deciding not to give them a job. And so like as the AI experts, we definitely have to respect all of these terrible scenarios. And a lot of companies don't respect that and then they get caught off guard. Exactly. And I think because they don't respect it and they don't see it really, what can be done? What do you think is our role? I don't think you can protect against all biases because we don't actually know that they exist. So like um, one higher view found a fun example where we noticed that people with glasses potentially, we weren't doing anything internally to move the needle on this, but just in some of the reporting and kind of understanding things we noticed that actually showed up. 
is kind of being a human influencer. And so sometimes we don't know what the biases are until we discover them. One of the things I love right now with deep learning is you can do topic discovery. So a lot of times at deep learning, you look, we look at toy problems, like I'm going to build a classifier, I'm going to build a regressor. But deep learning is an amazing tool for organizing unstructured data. So unsupervised deep learning can produce topics. So if glasses are a topic, or if you know this particular religious group is a topic, or you know if someone having red hair is a topic, you can find groups in a massive data set, a human. We don't have the resources as humans to go through and understand a data set at that level. That's a powerful tool for you to kind of stay ahead of it. That's the best way is to kind of understand topics and continue to get insight into why models tick. That's actually been a fascinating thing for me to see. A lot of these conservative industries, for the last five years, they've refused to budge off of their classical models like fintech. They use logistic regression, support vector machine, or Bayesian methods. And anything else is bad. They just don't do it. But what we see is they're now jumping ship. They're now jumping over to the ensemble methods and deep learning because the upside is so high. The upside for them to disrupt a competitor, reduce cost, and really impact their businesses there. And so what we found is the AI experts have scrambled for insight, for model defensibility, for reason codes, for topic discovery, for heat maps with deep nets. So there's actually some really powerful tools there that allow an industry who's very conservative like healthcare or fintech or HR to consume really advanced AI. And that'll just continue to improve. That was one of the projects. DARPA in the US, so military research arm, they just announced $2 billion in funding I think last week. One of the things that they're teasing out is model insight. They want to see what they can do to improve. So the AI war effort is it's kind of a terrible, terrible thing that we'll see in our lifetime. But one of the things they're interested in are reason codes because the darker side of that is they need defensibility. So the AI actually did some action or it's going to do an action or hopefully it's always suggesting to the human that wants to do an action, the human's making the decision, they really want to understand why. So if the AI is telling you to destroy this target, they want the AI to tell the human a convincing story to a lay audience that kind of gives them that intuitive buy-in that yes, this makes sense. So right now we yes. do that with topic discovery. So. Man, that is so interesting. And how do you see the state of this AI warfare? It's going to be arms race because you have countries with urgency and with budget that for their own defense strategies, they will need to stay relevant. So you have countries like China and the US, Russia, and even Israel has very advanced AI warfare, where these types of countries are going to be very active in the amount of money that they're putting into these, with the US announcing $2 billion in DARPA research. They're going to be investing a lot of resources. So I actually did, I wrote two blog pieces. So I, I enjoy writing AI blogs and articles on LinkedIn. I wrote two talking about the robot apocalypse. So one of the ones I wrote was just talking about kind of the business behind AI warfare and what that looks like in the future. Like if someone like me or my company, if 10 years from now, if I'm competing against you for a billion dollar contract for the US government for AI droid, like we have droids that can go out and do autonomous, you know, they can autonomously kill enemies. You and I will be competing on different features. And so some of the features that we would naturally evolve through that process are very, very scary. And so one of the things I talked about is, have you seen these virtual reality simulations that NVIDIA... So if you have a droid or a drone, it actually is too hard for you to teach the droid to break an egg. 
So for you to go teach a droid to break an egg and cook yourself scrambled eggs, that's actually really hard. No human ever wants to teach a droid robot to do that. But NVIDIA was showing the new thing now is these robots train in a virtual environment. So they're literally trying to break an egg in a virtual environment with a full like physical model of the robot and they're failing. They're failing over and over and over again. The egg breaking example I just gave is very complicated. They're doing other things like running. Running is a perfect example. So if I have a droid robot and if I have to write an algorithm for it to run, that's incredibly difficult. But with these simulations, it actually becomes really trivial. So if I want a robot that can run and then do like mixed martial arts against another robot, I can have the computer just do simulations. And so what you're going to have in the near future is you will have these droids doing robot warfare simulations. They're actually going out and killing other robots on a supercomputer and they're simulating it. And then me being the smart businessman that I am, or I'm not saying I'm smart, but just like, like you and I are competing and I want to have a selling point that I can kind of put on my proposal. I would actually show that all of my droids that I ship into the combat zone are genetically unique, like digitally genetically unique. So they've come out of different simulations and they're different. Some of them have longer arms. Some of them have extra arms, extra appendages. They have different traits. And now all I'm doing out in like out in the war scene, I'm just logging which drones came home or which droids came home. The ones that came home, they mate digitally back at the factory. And so now you have like this terrible, terrible cycle. So one of the things I talk about is the AI warfare of the future is we actually can't imagine how terrifying it will be because it won't actually be inspired by anything that's biological. So you see the Terminator movies, you got things running around on two legs or spider robots. It won't be any of those things. We actually don't even know what it will be. Like, will it be like this, you know, these wheels rolling around on the ground, killing people? Will it be some type of flying drone? We can't imagine it because I can guarantee it won't be inspired biologically. It'll be inspired from heavy, heavy computer simulations. So things to not look forward to in the That's future. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. And yes, I never thought about it that way, but that's... Totally. Well, the other yeah. thing that blew my mind was really thinking about a hive mind. Because in deep learning, we're very comfortable with like a camera feed. But people don't realize that a computer, a convolutional net can consume all camera feeds. We could literally design a system where there are 10 camera feeds. All of them are consumed to make a decision in real time. So what happens if you're being surrounded by drones and droids with this hive mind idea, all of them comprehend all of the sensory information of all of them at the same time. And not only that, but the hive mind controls all of them at the same time. So if you're fighting one robot, like with your hands, which would be a really dumb idea because we would lose, humans would lose. So if you're fighting one, the entire hive mind is controlling, it's orchestrating all the movement of all of the combatants. But the thing that people don't really realize is the hive mind has no emotional attachment to any member of the group. So it would literally kill or destroy a hundred droids immediately if it meant winning the war or winning the outcome. We're humans, we're emotionally tied to that. So if you have to send me to die to save the platoon, you'll have some hesitation. A hive mind would make that decision in 100 milliseconds. Just like, okay, we are now doing suicide bombing droids into this building to break through a brick wall. And we had to suicide bomb 50 droids, but we're through the wall and we're killing you now. That would literally be like a 100 millisecond decision to get there, where humans would be, we take hours to come up with strategies. Man, this is incredible because it is literally extrapolating current trends, current technologies to a logical outcome. Everything that you're saying is completely plausible and very likely to happen. Well, 
And it's even incentivized to happen because if I'm competing on a war contract, I will advertise those capabilities and I will want to demonstrate them in a lab so I can land the war contract. The, the other thing I was really surprised by, we we're talking to some friends in LA where they're very familiar with radar. And they were talking about how with, I didn't know this. So when we think of radar, we think of planes and ships and mm. things like that. But there's actually mobile radar. So I have radar that I can walk around with and I can hold it. And what that allows me to do is with that radar technology, I can see humans through walls. So I, I can't see like your face, but I can estimate your skeletal structure. So like I know where your shoulders are and your arms are. And so just with mobile radar, and this is today, with mobile radar, I've got enough information. Someone could do a kill shot through a wall and kill up to eight people. So it's all about like the number of people. Like one person's easy, two people's harder, three people's harder. But with the current state of the yeah. technology, you could kill five people through a wall remotely. So you could have a little drone fly down and park the radar system next to the house. If you want to be really fancy, you'd have three of them. So you get like the signal accuracy. They just go park next to your house. And then you'd have a visual heat map that would be sent to the 50 cal sniper 700 yards away and he would shoot everyone through the wall or the improvement there would be you have an ai sniper you don't even have a human sniper you just have like an ai box with legs up on the hill and it's sniping humans through a wall and the thing you realize is the ai vision of the future it's not going to be rgb it will actually be full spectrum so ai will yes. literally be interrogating the entire spectrum from like radar to x-ray where it's just like hitting the whole spectrum and and what people don't realize is that you actually can't hide so if i'm hiding in my fridge ai knows i'm hiding in my fridge and it knows that i'm scared before it comes into my house because it would get vitals on me you know like my heart rate yeah. and it would you know guess my my gender and my age and be like well this is a combatant this is a male that's this age and they're hiding in the fridge and i'm going to go into the house and talk to them and then with the hive mind you'd actually get like a bunch of these working together so if they're kind of unsure on a target they'd surround the house so you have like 10 of them around the house and there are they're all interrogating the house on the full spectrum and then they really do know that you're in the fridge and now they're going to come into your house so like the idea of like hiding or like in terminator he pours gas on himself like under the the car and stuff like that that will work on one wavelength or like like a, a narrow band that will work on a narrow band but for the full spectrum interrogation it's actually nonsensical for you to hide behind the rock or hide over here and, and those are like natural evolutions so that's right. There's nowhere. Yeah, there, yeah, there's nowhere. And so Elon talks about like he wants AI and humans to kind of figure out how to integrate with something like a neural link. Because if it's AI versus humans with warfare, that becomes there's not really a scenario where a human would ever be effective out in a war scenario. So it would be your droids versus our droids where they're just out there fighting each other. The other interesting thing is they've already fought each other in the supercomputer. So if you're going to go invade North Korea, you have information on their AI war, like war droids. You've actually had a million battles on their terrain in the supercomputer. That's allowed you to estimate resources. So the scary thing in the future, you could actually have a country, if they have sufficient compute power, they can estimate world domination resources. So they haven't even attempted the war, but they've simulated a world domination war and they know the resources because anyone can win with resources. So they would know like, okay, for us to win world domination war, these are the targets. This is the order. And these, we, instead of needing 10 million droids, we need 5 billion. Yes. And if all of our citizens start mining steel. We can do that. Like, you know, they would actually figure that out internally. That just becomes kind of a really weird, there's really weird insight that right now war, there's a lot of random variation with war where they're educated guesses, but you would actually get confidence ranges. 
like if we're going to fight each other, you would literally have like there is a 98 percent chance that we completely destroy Ben's country and all of his resources based on simulation. And you would even based on simulation, you would shoot blind targets like you wouldn't even know I'm in this building. You would just bomb those targets because based on game like stochastic simulation, that was a typically that was a good play. Like yes. that was a good play for you to bomb these 20 strategic locations because based on game simulation, five of those were extremely effective. Maybe because mm. there's not resources in them, but there could be resources in the future that hold up in there and it causes a problem for you. AI could make these strange decisions where it actually doesn't care that it doesn't know the information. It just knows that this is a strategic point that could give you, an, just like chess. So it'd be like chess from hell. Yes, that's right. Chess from hell. Yeah, chess wow. from hell in the future. So we, we already lose at chess and chess is such a simple game. So now we're going to lose at something that is much more complicated and even more confusing. So we do have some passion projects internally with our AI company. So one of them is demonstrating superhuman Call of Duty or Fortnite on a networked computer system where the game would learn from human gameplay. So you'd actually record human gameplay. And then once you hit 100 hours, the computer would initialize. And what you could have is just like you have AI controlling an entire room of poker. So if you play poker online, it's actually kind of dangerous because there are situations where the entire table is controlled by AI. So every member at that poker table online, you think you're talking to a human, it's actually one AI. So one AI wow. understands all the hands at the table and it's making cash bets that influence, like this is for real money. So that's happening today. And so there's examples where you would have a hive mind demonstrate today. Like our company doesn't have resources to throw on it right now, but someone in the next three years, they'll demonstrate hive minds that can beat a team of five human first person shooters on a very popular game like Call of Duty. And when you see those examples, I think people will start watching that and they'll realize that they're watching something. It's a game. It's not scary, but they're watching something that is incredibly scary because the best humans on the planet with a team of five, they can't beat the AI on a world map where they're being shot and bombed and they're sweeping a house and the AI will do things really, really strange that like it might come into a room and spin and, and do like headshots. It'll come into your room, spin and shoot everyone in the head and then go to the next room. And it'll do things that won't feel very natural, but they'll be incredibly effective for that entity. Yes. So amazing. Insane. That is so and it's true and it's around the corner. Yeah, it is like you, I feel like a company could pull it off this year. So if we had resources, dedicated resources, we could pull it off this year. So my hope in the future, since I don't have the reaction ability to compete against an eight-year-old human on like Xbox, my hope in the future is I will be eating popcorn and I will just watch this autonomous hive mind, like just clean house with all of the eight-year-old kids in the world with Xbox and stuff. And I'll just listen to their audio where they're complaining. Love it. But, that is great. I do have to ask you, what is your vision for your company and your platform? Yeah, so our vision is, this has happened in, multi, in a couple different industries. So in some industries, you race to the bottom. So you're trying to race to the bottom of ease of use or adoption. And so a lot of AI platforms right now, they essentially sell to the data scientists or they, they make the data scientist's life easier. People are starting about, they're starting to talk about selling to the developer. So the kind of the dream and the ambitions of our company is we really only want to sell to the product visionary and the software developer. 
we don't want to sell to the data scientists because there's a lot more software developers than there are data scientists. And so our ambitions in the future would be realizing deep learning consumption because it's actually not valuable until it's consumed. So like a, a validation study is not valuable necessarily. So we want to drive AI consumption across as many verticals as we can and as many industries as we can. And then the real dream in the future would be some uneducated farmer in Iowa who has like 10,000 acres of corn is using AI or our software to make intelligent, impossible predictions on corn yield or, or some, something else. So just AI everywhere. We joke that we're the AI missionaries from Utah. So our goal is to convert you. We don't even care if you use our product. We just want to convert you to AI into automation, which is actually really interesting because with that, there's kind of a darker side of unemployment. So a lot of people react to that. If AI comes in and automates everything, then everyone's going to be unemployed. And, and there is truth to that. But the thing that we've seen firsthand is with the customers that we engage with, they don't immediately lay off people. What happens is those people, which are domain experts, they become, they're able to focus on the really competitive insights that they haven't been able to focus on. Because right now they're backlogged with property appraisals, they're backlogged with these things, but now with automation, they can focus on improving the AI, improving their insights on the problem, the data sets that the AI trains on. So eventually there will be a point that the AI has learned everything that the human could possibly teach it. But right now we do see an amplification process. It's not an elimination process. So I think that's kind of, that's the differentiator. AI is not an elimination process necessarily yet, but it is definitely an amplification process for people. That's excellent because that's obviously described as one of the nicer scenarios when bringing in AI. So it's great to hear that you're seeing it. So we are seeing it today, but I also tend, I tend to be more negative long-term on the AI layoff numbers because I've heard 7% in the next 10 years. I think it's going to be higher because we are seeing superhuman abilities on industries. So that example on Core with the genetic GANs, we're showing early results that suggest that you won't have human models in the next five to 10 years. So 10, you could even pull it off this year if that was your company. Like if we decided like we will just sell models to order for men and women for all product companies to, for advertising, I think we could pull off something this year that would be an incredibly useful product. But 10 years from now, it's hard for me to imagine a human doing a photo shoot anywhere in the world for a product because AI will generate anything to order that you want. But more importantly, it'll generate different ads for different people. So you will see a different advertisement with a fake model in it than I will. And you're more likely to click on yours than I am and vice versa. And so that we're, we're moving to this hyper persona maximum manipulation future. There are jobs there that I think have never been discussed or even thought of that will go away. Because when people think of layoffs, they think of truck drivers. They think of the professional driver being replaced, Uber, taxis being replaced with AI. There's a lot of other jobs like physicians. So I tend to be kind of down on physicians and some people don't like that. Where I've been saying for a couple of years now that radiologists and pathologists and dermatologists are going to get an order of magnitude reduction in the workforce because AI can do a better job. AI can is better at finding rare diseases. It doesn't make as many mistakes. I see a natural evolution there where you're going to see a big reduction in physicians 
I'd be angry today. I'm always like, I'm kind of this like little AI hornet. So I, I'd be angry today if I went into the physician, and my kid got a CT scan and there was no AI involved. And I think that's the reality, unfortunately. And my wife actually has chronic kidney disease, which is still undiagnosed by humans. Fortunately, it's holding steady. So her kidneys are functioning like 46% of functionality where yours and mine are firing away at 99%. Right. Yeah. We can eat all the junk food we want and it just processes that crap out. She has had multiple physicians reviewing her for a decade, and she is still undiagnosed. But I know her disorder won't be named after her because the statistically that's unlikely. But based on all of the unstructured data of all the patients on the West Coast, I could take that data to a college intern who has ambition to move into data science, and they could send me a stack ranked list of probable diagnoses, and I can convince that her disorder would be in the top five. Just based on like, if you had all of the blood work, all the patient information, all information that matters on the patient, you would know so much more than the physicians already. Because the nephrologists are literally looking at a paper. They're holding a paper from a blood lab and they're looking at two numbers or three numbers and they're trying to make a decision. And so it's like stone age technology, but it's the best we have today. I see AI just completely disrupting that. Yeah. And then people, I saw a presentation last night for deep learning where someone is showing that in the near future, I can predict if you have skin cancer without even touching you just by hitting your skin with a laser and using deep learning on the backscatter. So because uh-huh. your your cancer cells on your skin, they backscatter light differently, but it's such a complicated signal that you need something like deep learning. So they have pre- preliminary results that show really good classification results where in the future you will have a mirror or maybe even your shower. So you'll get into your shower in the morning and you are getting an analysis that we can't even imagine today where like skin cancer, your kidney function, your liver function, just over your overall risk of cancer, all of that is being assessed. And if you really want, this might be TMI where you're like, I hate you AI because it's telling you like your, your body fat composition or it's telling you like, oh man, like you really need to go ride your bike today. And you're like, You know, you'll have like the AI that actually gets stuff done. Like if you want to like run at a certain level of fitness, the AI is like, you know, it's the world's biggest jerk. But in the future, everyone will have these personal health assessment mirrors or things within their homes that will provide a lot more value than physicians do today with some types of diagnoses. But the physician's completely outside the loop. You're taking a shower and you're getting this unbelievable health assessment of anything that could be detected externally, which is quite a lot, like your kidney function, liver function, risk of heart attack, any skin cancer, growth hormone defects. Like there's a lot of diseases that we can check on a daily basis and just not worry about because we're getting a daily check. I love this stuff. I love AI. I love where we're going. I love, that's also interesting too, because we can't stop the AI war machine because there are so many good things that will come from AI. So security, healthcare, safety. I think five years from now, it'll be almost impossible for you to steal something out of my car in my driveway without being prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Right now, that's quite easy. Go break the window at three in the morning and Maybe the camera will see you, but not enough to identify you. But five to 10 years from now, you're going to see a reduction in crime because it'll become almost impossible for you to pull something like that off. That's right. That's the world I'm, I'm excited about. And, and that's why yeah, I love it's, this. It's exciting, but kind of scary where you realize, like one of my favorite plots I saw about AI is AI is cute until it's scary. So it's like a step function. So you see like AI robots, you see these security systems like, oh, this is cute, this is cute, this is neat, this is helpful, this is neat. And then almost overnight, it will become shockingly scary. So did you see the Boston Dynamics droid robot doing the backflip last year? 
Yeah, so that's amazing. So when I saw that, I thought, I guarantee you the next five to 10 years, you're going to have a demonstration where a robot like that can outrun a human sprinter. So the 100 meter dash will be won by a robot like that. And then um, I heard Elon Musk take it to the extreme where he said in the future, these droid robots will run so fast, you'd need a strobe light to see them. So that's like insane. That's like, yeah. So like, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, so they can outrun a human and they can beat you in mixed martial arts. And so if you're going to actually go fight one of these with like a knife, you would definitely lose. But Elon's taking it to like the unimaginable extreme. And he's right that sure, like if that behavior is useful, if fast is useful, fast may not be useful. Maybe these droids being 15 feet tall with three legs is useful. We don't know what useful will be because it will actually be designed by the AI if fast is useful. So that'd be the argument against Elon that that will never exist because that is not what the AI will realize is effective. It may realize something else that having fingers for knives is incredibly effective, or maybe just it'll realize that there's a certain frequency of an electromagnetic pulse that makes humans go to sleep, or like we have brain aneurysms when this happens. The AI will decide that that is incredibly useful, so it'll walk around with a huge like cone-shaped antenna on its head that it can direct towards an individual and and hit them with like a a human like an EMP pulse that is deadly for people. We have no idea, but the AI will definitely figure it out. Hundred percent. That is excellent. Man, this has been super interesting. Super interesting. I only have one last question for you. And it's what advice would you give to people in their career, people that are interested in this and that have a lot of career ahead of them? I love data science. I feel like everyone should go that way. I tend to try to pull people that way um, if I run into them for career advice. It's interesting because a lot of people kind of want like a punch card of you know, these are the five things to do or 10 things to do that will make you successful to become a data scientist. And, and I've written a few blogs on LinkedIn that people can find where some of them I've had good feedback or I have tried to go at that level, but it really comes down to a really simple thing. It is just one thing. So when I see the people that are ridiculously successful, it comes down to passion. And so one quick example I'll give is three years ago, I was presenting on deep learning to a college and the group I'm presenting to is like a college data science, like meetup group. It's just college kids. No one's actually working in industry yet. And most of the kids are very naive when it comes to this topic. So they're essentially getting their first exposure. And while I'm giving this presentation, some of them start asking for career advice at the end. So kind of hitting on this, like, well, what do I need to have? Or what do I need to get for you to hire me at a company like HireVue or somewhere else? And there was a kid on the front row named Adam Rogers. He's a student. He actually, I guess in the process, he's dropping out. He's currently dropping out of his master's program. So like from the optics, you might say, well, this is a student who's a low performing student or like the student is they're less interesting. He was asking me questions on the front row about PyTorch versus MXNet and Siamese nets. So he's asking me questions that I can't even like I can answer his questions, but I can't necessarily answer them in publicly in front of the student group because they're not useful. So he's asking questions that are completely, very confusing to the rest of the student group. And the interesting thing from that is when I was having that exchange with him, I remember thinking in my mind that I'm not sure if you guys will be able to get jobs. Most of you actually will have a hard time. Like that's the reality, unfortunately. So I'm thinking that. But then I'm thinking, I don't know who this kid is on the front row. He's going to have no problem getting a job. That's just my 30 second take or like my two minute take. Like, well, I don't know who you are, but you know a lot more about deep learning than you should 
which suggests that there's some passion behind there, like, because you're not learning it in school. And then two weeks later, he got a job where I actually kind of heard he was competing against PhDs. And he got a job as a data scientist, and he now works for Microsoft in Seattle. And so he he's had a successful data science career, but he's a master's dropout. And the thing that really differentiated him was passion. If you have passion, and if you can turn that into obsession, you will do just fine. If you're trying to become a data scientist to get a good paycheck, you will have a very hard time getting a job. So true. So true. I love that. I love that example. It's really weird to me because we interact a lot with colleges and the majority of students, they can't get jobs. Literally like 90%, they are really struggling to get a job. And out of that group, there's one student that's getting all of the job offers. Like one student is literally like stacking up. I've got five job offers. I can't decide which one's going to pay me more. And so they're getting like double the compensation. And really it comes down to like, it's not just passion. Like you can't start from zero and come to an interview and say, I have more passion than anyone else. Let me tell you why I'm so excited. Like no one will get a job from that. But normally what happens is you come with a very impressive level of breadth. And that's just come from like personal activity. Like you're just so excited about this space. You've hit on so many things and it's, it's pretty easy to hit someone's technical competency bucket and you can kind of get like good, better, best. So there's like basic entry and expert and just a few basic questions. You can kind of figure out where people are on these scales and these people with really high passion, even before they get a job, they're kind of, they're asking about Siamese nets. And I'm like, what, why the hell are you asking about a Siamese net? Like you're a college kid. This was three years ago. Now yeah. it's less impressive. But three years ago, it's like, how do you even know what that is? Like that yeah. like paper just like, like now it's more expected. But like three years ago, it was like, like want to find out more about you. And it's funny. I've been trying to hire. I tried a few times to convince Adam Rogers to come back. Or I'm just like, yes, come back to Utah. But it, it's hard to find people with passion. That's right. And at least I've found that if you keep chasing them and keep at them, you do get them eventually. Oh, yeah. If you're persistent. Yeah, data science is, I'm so glad I switched out of chemical engineering. The compensation, the problems you work on, they're really, really fun. Amazing. Man, thank you so much. Incredible. Really, really incredible. I can't thank you enough. This has been super, super interesting and super valuable. I love your take on it. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It's great meeting you, Philippe. And thanks, thanks for the questions and the steering. I think it was a fun discussion. I, I love this stuff. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.